We'll go ahead and get started. That stinker, Pastor Randy. <laughs> Tell you what. Hard to teach an old dog new tricks, I guess. So you got to be careful about who you hire in today's society. We hired this new youth pastor, Tanner Manns, and he comes along, and I see he's got in the bulletin a youth group Super Bowl party. If the Packers aren't in it, what's the point? I mean... <laughs> I don't get it, but I'll send, him a, I'll send him an email or memo. We'll take care of that problem. Let's go ahead and start with prayer, and then we'll get into today's lesson in Ephesians. <clears throat> Thank you to God for this time we can have. Thank you for an opportunity to worship you forevermore. Thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your justice. And righteousness. We pray we'd honor you. Help us have just a, a fruitful day the rest of this day and this week. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Before I get started in today's lesson, I was going to make a few comments on the article writ, uh, kicked out yesterday by Desiring God. It's John Piper's website or email that he sends out every day. I subscribe to it. It's called Desiring God. And oftentimes there's an article on there, or sometimes it's John Piper himself as he goes through scripture and circles stuff. It's, it's almost like John Madden football. He circles this and points at this and then X's this and underlines this and all kinds of stuff as he's explained. It's very interactive. I love it. But there was an article yesterday on Desiring God called, and I read this article just because it intrigues your mind, obviously. Here's the article. Hell... Should it unsettle Christians? Embracing the most emotionally difficult doctrine. Hell should unsettle Christians. So whenever we watch a movie, a TV show, or something like that, we always have the villain who eventually loses, right? Every single time. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the TV show, right? If you had the villain, the robber, you know, finally he runs over everybody and just, you know, lives life, robs all the money, never gets caught. That never happens, right, in the TV show or the movie. He's always caught. He's murdered or killed or caught and put in jail or something like that, right? <clears throat> so the villain gets what he deserves, in other words, right? So if you are like, um, if you're like Batman and Robin, you know, five minutes before the show is over, Batman and Robin are still tied to the pole. He said, what are they going to do? How are they going to get out of this, right? And catch the Joker or the Penguin or the Cat Lady, right? If you ever watch Batman and Robin. And sure enough, something happens. They get untied. They, you know, fight the minions or whatever. And then they, they win in the end. And the good guy wins and the bad guy loses, right? And punishment comes jail or something like that it's hauled away in a squad car it's kind of like home alone when you know the first home alone one when he's being taken away in the squad car and what's the little boy's name i forgot his name he's what's kevin kevin's looking out the window and he's like smiling at him you know he's going off to jail here's the problem we have a harder time imagining ourselves or our beloved friends and family as the wicked, as those justly deserving what Jesus calls hell. So C.S. Lewis, back in 1939, says in his book, he says, there, I said it. The crude monosyllable, hell. I know, too, that nearly all references to the subject in the New Testament come from a single source, and then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it's St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are D-O-M-I-N-I-C, dominical, meaning from Jesus. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or his church. If we do not believe him, our presence in the church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must sometimes overcome our spiritual prudery and mention them. The reason I'm talking about this today it's in direct contrast to everything we're studying in Ephesians. I want you to understand, this is the same God. This is the same Jehovah Yahweh that talks about in Ephesians 
richness, mercy, kindness, forgiveness, riches forevermore on steroids. That's what Paul's talking about, Ephesians. And that same God is the one who talks about hell. These overwhelming doctrines are dominical. For instance, the Greek Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, which we translate hell, occurs 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of them are from the lips of Jesus. Hell comes from the Lord, uh, mouth of the Lord himself. It is really an existential problem of, hell, of evil and hell that unsettle us most. This weight creates crisis of faith for some, and the crisis can be exasperated by assuming that we're suffering under this weight alone, or that few others are, or that maybe you really shouldn't feel this angst at all. In other words, not think about it. Out of sight, out of mind. Our society loves to do that. Out of sight, out of mind. Hell, let's not talk about that. Because it has to do with punishment or judgment. Here's the deal. Hell is supposed to make us uncomfortable. This side of heaven, there's the key word, is not a sign of spiritual health to be untroubled by the horrors of hell. As Wayne Gruden said, this doctrine is emotionally one of the most difficult doctrines for Christians to affirm today. Okay, so this man, the guy who wrote this article says, okay, that's fine, but we're going to go where the Bible goes with this. And where does the Bible go with this? Revelation. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to the sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who have conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass, with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, Lord, or glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So another sign in heaven here, okay, in which he calls great and amazing, the seven plagues, the seven angels, right? The wrath of God is finished. Um... Here's, here's the point. How these saints in heaven respond to God's, God's poured out wrath? They sing and rejoice without any stated reservation. Is that uncomfortable? They praise their Lord, not despise the righteous act in just ways, but, be pre- but precisely because of them. Judge, his judgments are true and just. If you love holiness if you love righteousness again it's a contrast to what we're talking about today in Ephesians that's why I'm bringing this up I thought it was just a fitting and the justice of hell in the end will be a component of joy not a detriment to it here's the better part we will see without question that the judge of all the earth has done right Genesis 18 as the reference there he will wipe away every tear and there will be no mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, as cited in Revelations 21. I thought that was interesting, especially when we're talking about Ephesians. And the point is, it's the same God. We talked about forever, saying here, forevermore, in the, in the praise songs. From before and into the future, this God does not change. He's the same then as he is today and will be in the future. Righteous, holy, worthy to be praised, and his justice is to be praised. Today, um, we'll see how far we get. i got a couple chapters I'd like to go through. We may not get that far, but that's, that's fine. Today, we're going to start out with uh, Ephesians, the end of chapter 1, and then we're uh, eventually go on to chapter 2. But Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 Again, we're, uh, Paul is talking about thanksgiving and prayer, and again, his blessings. And so we're just going to go, th- go through this, uh, this set of verses, we'll come back and we will dissect them and go from there. 
So starting with verse 15 in chapter 1, Thanksgiving and prayer, for, and he's writing again to his uh, saints, to his followers, to his believers. I often wonder when he writes his letters, because he was in Ephesus for quite a while, how many people he knew there. He must have obviously known some, but not all the believers. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Remember, this is a guy in chains in jail. That, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge in him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. We will hit on that today big time. And that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Visualize that. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in, in all. Let's go ahead and dissect this a little bit. So Ephesians, starting with verse 15, uh, we were discovered uh, when, we were born, when we were born that we were rich when we trusted Christ. And he has emphasized this to the, to the nth degree. But to further clarify, the author of our book here, Be Rich, which again, I've, this is the book that's kind of guided me, helped me go through this piece right here, says that's not enough. We must grow in our understanding of our riches if we are to use them, if we are to use them for God's kingdom. In other words, to be useful. Uh, they are like... So he was talking, the author's talking about the bank book, basically. What's in the bank? I, reminds me of, I remember going through marriage counseling, they talked about a love bank. Now, I've never seen that in any street around here, but it's like an, imagine, like an emotional love bank. They make deposits or withdrawals. If you do something nice for your spouse, you make a deposit in the love bank, right? If you do something bad, you make a withdrawal. That's happened on my part. But here, we're going to talk about, okay, so this is what the author talks about. They are, they are like the late newspaper publisher, William Randolph Hearst, okay, who invested a fortune collecting art treasures from around the world. Does he know about, oh, what's that? Uh, Norman Rockwell. Maybe he has a bunch of those. One day, Mr. Hearst found a description of some valuable items that he felt he must own. He's got to own these. They sound so great. So he sent his agent abroad to find them, searched far and wide for these items that he wanted for his treasure of items. After months of searching, searching the agent reported back, he had finally found the treasures. They were in Mr. Hearst's warehouse. <laughs> Hearst had been searching frantically for treasures that he already owned. To use our gifts and our abilities and what God has given us, been rich towards us. Paul mentions faith and love. Faith towards God in this particular verse and love towards man. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. Okay, so faith and love. This is directly related to the two commandments that Jesus said are the most important. When he's questioned and been trying to be cornered by the Pharisees, what are the greatest commandments? And they're sitting in the back with their pens waiting for him to report, right? He says two of them. She'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the first one. And number two is love your neighbor as yourself. And then upon these two commandments, every other command is built upon it. So here's Paul talking to the Ephesians exactly about this. Your faith towards God, which is really a, a, a form of love, 
and love towards man. In other words, you cannot separate these. These are totally intertwined. You cannot have one. You cannot have one without the other. Well, here's a question then. Remember when he was, Jesus was asked, how many times must I forgive my neighbor? Um, you know, how do I show love to my neighbor? Well, here's just a few attributes that the same author, written to a different group of people, has to say about the aspect of love. See if you notice these. See if you recognize these. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Here's a good one. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Remember that as you get older. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Faith towards God, love towards your neighbor. That's what Paul is talking about. He's just thankful for it right up front with his listeners. For this reason, because they have heard of your faith, I do not cease to give thanks for you. You're doing that. Good for you. That's awesome. And then he goes on to some prayer requests. Okay, Four of them specifically, and we're going to uh, dive into those. Um, but before we do that, we're going to look at two facts. And it has specifically to do with the verbiage of having your eye, or eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now, my heart physically doesn't have eyes. In fact, I had a doctor's appointment this last week where he showed me the images of my heart. Can I brag a little bit? I have four. What do you have? Two main ones and then two other ones like this in your heart. And three of them are like calcium-free, right? And then one of them has a little bit slight calcium buildup, right? But he was showing me the images as he was turning the images this way and that way, and he'd point at that and point at that. I never saw any eyes on there. But having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So if, what is the reference here? What is he talking about specifically? Enlightenment comes, enlightenment comes from the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. How is that the case? How does that come about? What does that look like? John 14, 25 and 26. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I'll start actually in verse 15. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. We'll come back to that later. That's the Holy Spirit. But then 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is referencing the third part there, the Holy Spirit, and comes to you, and enlightenment comes from that. We have really no other way of having any type of enlightenment without that. Here's the problem. Natural man, in his natural state, cannot understand the things of God. In other words, he needs the Spirit. The Spirit is a necessary component for you to have any type of eyes with your heart and enlightened heart. 1 Corinthians talks a little bit about that. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one can comprehend the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That is very revealing. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, 
that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Again, freely. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, if you do not have the Holy Spirit within you, you will not see the things of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolish, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? And then he has, ends with this very kind of exclamation point, meaning, meaning believers, followers, followers of Christ. <laughs> this is what he says here. And this is kind of the, okay, it's here. But we have the mind of Christ. How do you have the mind of Christ? You have the mind of Christ because you have the Holy Spirit. Remember, we talked about this a couple lessons ago, but as a Holy Spirit as being a deposit, a guarantee of future inheritance. The mind of Christ as, as in for believers. Okay, so what else about enlightenment? Enlightenment comes to the heart of the, of the believer. Okay, comes to the heart of the believer. How does that come? Um, verse 18, having the eyes that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Okay, so enlightenment comes to the heart of the believer. What does this mean? What does this mean specifically? The author has a couple comments on, the, on this one specifically, and it goes something like this. Second, this enlightenment comes to the heart of the believer. Literally, this verse reads, The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. We think of the hearts as the emotional part of man, but in the Bible, the heart means the inner man. It includes the emotions, the mind, and the will. The inner man, the heart, has spiritual faculties, get this, that parallel the physical senses. What are the physical senses, right? Taste, touch, see. The inner man can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. There's different references will go in this. This is what Jesus meant when he said of his people. They are seen, they see and see not, hearing they hear not. The inability to see and understand spiritual things is not the fault of the intelligence, because we know, but of the heart. The eyes of the heart must be opened by the Spirit of God. When Jesse was asked to parade his sons before the prophet to see, okay, who will be the next king? Oh, we'll start out with number one. Since I'm the youngest, I kind of enjoy this one. Who will be number one? Oh, we'll start out with the first son. Nope, not him. Why not? Uh, God looks at the heart, not the outer man. We look at the outer man, who's the prettiest, who's the most handsome. Mirror, mirror on the wall, right? Well, he gets done with all the sons, and still no king. What's the deal? Oh, I forgot. The youngest, he's out in the field out there with the sheep somewhere. Go get him. Go get him, right? So they go out and get him, and sure enough, that's who God picks. Why? Because he has the heart of God. Okay, let's talk about these senses. I love these senses. I've had, I've had surgery on my eyes. This is a place called Vance Thompson where you go, and you can see better when you walk out of there. That was very enjoyable. I didn't realize how bad my cataracts were. So I go in, I get my surgery done a week later. Everything's so stinking bright, it's just like blind me. It's just like, right? Because it had gone gradually so dull, right? So the, the ability to see, to be able to see is so enjoyable. These senses, I love them. So let's just kind of go through a couple of these. And we'll start out with... Uh, We'll start out with, again, Jesus' comments or interaction with Nicodemus. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, rule of the Jews. This man came to, to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher, come from God. No one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, what? See. 
the kingdom of God, to visualize, to see. I remember in boot camp, in guard drill, I loved this. It was at night. The darker, the better. And you walk single file through this woods. Now, we weren't getting shot at by real bullets, but it was still kind of intense. It kind of gives you a vivid idea. Single file, ranger file, and you cannot talk at all. Hand signals only. This, this, whatever, right? But the one thing you can see, and it's very comforting, is the guys, uh, we call them rabbit eyes, in front of you. On the back of your helmet, there's these two little strips right here. They're about that long, about that wide. They look like captain bars almost. And they're on the back of your helmet. And if you took your flashlight and smashed it on there so that you, the flashlight wouldn't go anywhere else, turn the flashlight on for a minute, and then shut the flashlight and took it off, guess what they did? They glowed very faintly, very lightly, right? If you're walking ranger file and you're going through the woods and all of a sudden those cat eyes disappear, it's frightening, <laughs> because your buddy is not right there in front of you, and you always want that comfort, right? You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That's what Jesus is talking about in Nicodemus. Okay, well, that's one sense, right? Being able to see. And we've all done this, where we've gone to something that's like really gorgeous and beautiful. Like the falls. We go up to North Shore, Lake Superior sometimes. We go, and there's like these falls that come down out of the woods, and they fall a great distance and it's just a constant flow and you go to this landing site where you just you know you can just observe that and your eyes just kind of soak that in you observe right and you don't want to leave it's like you can't even absorb it all it's so gorgeous okay well let's talk about a different one let's talk about okay so we talk about seeing my eyes have been corrected okay now let's talk about hearing the parable of the sower in matthew we won't go through the parable, you know that, but other seeds fell on the ground, soil, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And Jesus says at the end, he who has ears, let him hear. I don't have hearing aids yet. Yet. Right? He who has ears, let him hear. So we see, we hear, right? This is talking about enlightenment. Ah, what about Smell. Smell. You wake up in the morning and your spouse is maybe cooking bacon? Or you walk into a flower shop? Something that's pleasing, right? Unlike when our neighbors spread manure when I was a kid. That was not a pleasing. You can smell it, right? But it wasn't near as pleasing. Well, Ashley has something to say about that too. 2 Corinthians, triumph in Christ, but thanks be to God who is in Christ always, leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance. Catch that verb, or catch that word, fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. It's appealing to our senses. You see something, it's pleasing you hear something, it's pleasing. Talk about hearing, going back to that real quickly. I used to, my two oldest daughters play the piano. We have a piano in our house. And I don't even know, it. Uh, what is the name? It's some Russian composer, like classical music. It's called Nouvelle, N-U-V-O-L-E. Listen to it sometime. It's like this classical music. And I would sit in my chair in the living room, and I'd sink in every five seconds a little bit deeper as I would close my eyes, I'd listen to my, I'd say, can you play this song, Eden or Faith, right? Even Emma did it too, Luke, no. Uh, but she, they would play that song, and you, you, I'd close my eyes, and it's just almost like a trance. It's just like, oh, man, that sounds so gorgeous. And you sink in and sink in and just listen to it. Eyes closed, no other senses. You just want to turn off all the other senses, listen to this music, and then they're done. i say, can you play it again? See, hear, smell a fragrance. Okay. Uh, well, what else we got here? Um, taste. We're not going to go into touching today, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit about taste. Okay. And let me find my verse here. 
There it is. Now, let's talk about taste a little bit. I brought along my visual for today. Anybody know what this is? This is a meat thermometer. I love grilling, cooking, smoking, not smoking like this, smoking meat, smoking, just all that stuff. I own a Weber kettle grill. It's probably my favorite. I get a gas grill. I got a uh, Kamado Joe. I'm not bragging. I just, I just love all that stuff because I love to cook. And tasting is just something. It's just, oh, my goodness. It's just. So the key to this, though, is I used to do this all the time, and I didn't watch any YouTube videos. I didn't know what I was ta- doing. And my son, Luke, said, are you having burnt chicken again tonight? That's it. We're not doing that anymore. So I watched all these, and so I started doing this charcoal thing, and I realized these guys know way more than I do. And I realized you cannot cook without this thing. It's impossible to do a good job without this. If you do, good for you. Good for you. That means you got tons of experience, but I can't. I'll give you an example. Last night, I got out the gas grill, three burner gas grill, charcoal grill, uh, not charcoal, gas grill, Weber, kettle, uh, Weber grill, three burners, open up the hood, get it started, close the hood, get it all hot. Now here's the key thing to making hamburgers and everything else too. You cannot overcook it, it or you will dry it out like that. Okay? So I got my hamburger, I made the patties. You have to have a special patty maker. You smash them, they're just the right size, right thickness, all this jazz. You put them on a cookie sheet, little olive oil on the hamburger, yes, take tips, write this down, <laughs> little olive oil on the hamburger, Lowry's, crushed pepper, don't use bought pepper, do crushed pepper, please, a little bit of uh, like rub or something like that, just a little bit, flip them over, same thing, olive oil seasoning, put it off to the side, sit in your kitchen there for like half an hour or so, go start your grill, start the grill, get it all nice and hot, Get the whole thing hot, all the whole thing super hot, scrape all the old stuff off, and here's the key, two-zone cooking. You have to learn how to do two-zone cooking. If you don't know how to do that, you're not going to learn how to grill very well. So I took the middle grill, the middle burner, I turned it all the way down. So it's still hot, but very minimal heat. And the two outside ones I left on high to create that, you know, circumvent air in there, whatever. And so I take... Scrape it all like this, spray the middle with that whatever spray, greasy spray, put the hamburgers on, one, two, three, close the lid, don't look. If you're looking, you're not cooking. <laughs> let it sit, let it sit, let it sit, let it sit. You're tempted to grab, I want to grab a thing and look at them. Nope, don't not watch them, because that takes all the heat out of that. So, we get done, well I didn't get done, I finally I open it up like this. And then I flip them gently. Don't squeeze your hamburgers. Do not squeeze your hamburgers. All the juice falls out. The flavor is gone. So I get them all done. And then you take your meat probe right here. You open it up. It's got the temperature on it. You stick it in the meat. It's almost like an instant read. And your hamburgers need to be about 160. 170, they really start drying out. 150, 145, you got a little pink in them. And you're whoever else, I mean, I don't mind that, but I really, you really should. You should go to 160 on hamburgers. Chicken's 165, pork's 140. You want me to go through the whole list? The point is, I make my hamburgers, put cheese on one of them for Brenda. I get them to the right temp, put them on the plate. Theoretically, when you bring them in, you should put them in tinfoil for 10 minutes and let them, you know, the juices soak back in. I do that for steak and chicken like that. But then it's time for supper. And you just take one slice and the juices are contained, and it is so flavorful. It is so tasty, right? So it's an enjoyment. It's an experience. It's the senses that God has given us. Touch, taste, smell, hear, and see. And so when we reference these, we're referencing something you already know. It's just like Jesus talking in agricultural terms to his crowd. They know everything about sheep. They know, they're around, all around them. So are shepherds, right? See, hear, smell, taste, and touch. Okay? 
First Peter, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk, cold, rich milk. I grew up in a dairy farm. We drank it right out of the tank. None of this pasteurized stuff. That by it you may grow up into salvation. And here's his reference. If indeed talking about the spiritual milk, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. An appeal to the senses. Here's the four prayer requests um, that we're going to talk about here, and this has to do with with our verses specifically in Ephesians. Okay, so let's go ahead and start these in the prayer request. Um, so first one is 117, uh, first, you know, first chapter 17, part B, and basically that you may know God, okay? That the, Lord, that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation knowing in the knowledge of him. In other words, to know God. The atheist says there is no God. The agnostic says we can't know God, Okay? Why? In Romans, in the first chapter, it talks specifically about willful ignorance. Pray this is not you or I. Okay? Um, Verse 18, specifically, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the knowledge of God, to know God, our Verbiage on our church. To know, to know God and to make him known. Who is he? If we, if we run away from that, it's from willful, willful, sinful ignorance. Okay, first part of 18. Having the uh, eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay, to know... Um, Basically, the calling. We're talking about here a calling to God, that you may know God's calling. In other words, to be called out. Called out of darkness into a marvelous light. That's a reference from 1 Peter. Okay? So to know God, to know God's calling. Part three, that we may know God's riches. That's the second part of 18, verse 18. um, That which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his saints? So there we're talking about, I look at my, I look at my children as riches. In other words, what can you own? You don't own your children, but what can you, your children are riches. So in, in, the same, in the same sense, his inheritance is in us. God should look upon us, or he will, does, look upon us as his great wealth. Notice the verbiage there. And partly, and the last one here, that we may know God's power. And that's uh, verses 19 through 23. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. all. Power. Paul uses many Greek words here. Dunamis, you know. This is the Greek form, D-U-N-A-M-I-S, means power, dynamite, or dynamo. Energia, E-N-E-R-G-E-I-A, working as in energy. Kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, means mighty. Iskus, power. In other words, these are available to us as believers, as saints in Christ. What good is wealth if we don't use it? What good is this wealth if we don't use it. In other words, it's sitting there, and again, author makes comments on this, on my book, 
John D. Rockefeller was the world's first billionaire. It said that for many years he lived on crackers and milk because of stomach troubles because he was worrying about his wealth. He rarely had a good night's sleep and guards stood constantly at his door, wealthy but miserable. When he began to share his wealth with others in great philanthropic endeavors, his health improved considerably. Okay? We need the power because we are weak. Okay, second reason we need this power or to tap into the power, and this one to me resonates even more, um, would be in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. And it has to do with the warding off of our enemies. We need strength, wisdom, and power to ward off our enemies. Chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Interesting concept. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit to help us ward off our enemies. Our enemies constantly want to take our guard down. To not be guarding our heart. How does God show his power in other ways? What else has he shown his power in? Well, simple one is the first one is in Genesis is the creation. Okay? Second one would be, the great one would be the story from the Old Testament, Exodus, is the Exodus from Egypt, where God demonstrates his power through the ten plagues. That dude was hard of learning, I tell you what, that Pharaoh guy, whew, my goodness. What does it take, right? Today, the power is in Christ's resurrection, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. No enemy could overcome him. Right? He is above all. How does this power affect us? Uh, but how does this apply to you and me today? How does this apply? How does this power that warding off the enemies, the, the, the power of the Spirit, in Ephesians 1, 23, Paul explained the practical application. Because we are believers, we are in the church, which is Christ's body, and he is at the head. This means that there is a living connection between you and Christ. Physically speaking, the head controls the body and keeps the body functioning properly. Injure certain parts of the brain and you handicap or paralyze corresponding parts of the body. Christ is our spiritual head. Through the Spirit, we are united to him as members of his body. This means we share his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. Paul will amplify this later. We too are seated in the heavenlies, and all things are under our feet. So, we'll skip um, any more explanation on that, because I just, uh, for lack of time... The next part, um, I am going to, we'll go ahead and read that. And we'll start with uh, verse, excuse me, verse 1 in, in uh, chapter 2. And this one here is a, another chapter written by the author. It's called Get Out of the Graveyard. Who played Ghost in the Graveyard when you were a kid? All kinds of things you can play outside, right? At night, hide and seek, Ghost in the Graveyard, stuff like that. Ephesians 2, by grace through faith. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, some specific works here. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not at work, now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
I'd love to take more time today to go on that. We won't have time for that. We'll start with that next week. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So the first three verses there, Paul is talking about being dead, trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at the work and the, son, the sons of disobedience among we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the way you were prior to being a believer. Switch gears. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Reference to what we talked about in the last chapter. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Remember the contrast of the thing I first started talking about when the concept of hell and the contrast here? Same God, same Jehovah Yahweh. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that was not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Sin's the works against us in verses 1 through 3. The sin is working against us. How does that work? What, is that, what does that look like? Well, if you read 1, one through 3, you can see it's very much an uphill battle. Everything's against us. I mean, we are just doing the wrong thing. There are sons of disobedience, right? Living our passion or our flesh, carrying out desires of the body, the mind. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's the state of mankind. Okay? The, sin, the sins work against us. And how they do that? In verse 1, they said, he is de- we're dead, spiritually dead. No spiritual life. This is prior to being any type of a born-again Christian. No spiritual life. In other words, do not respond to any type of spiritual proking or prodding. One of the things I do when I hunt is I, if I shoot a deer. Now, if you're a non-hunter, that's fine. But when you walk up to the animal, you know what you do? You poke them very gently in the eye. Because if they're still alive, they respond, right? If they're not the eyes don't blink. So no response means no spiritual life. What is the cause of that? It says here it talks about trespasses and sin. Death means separation. The only difference between sinners is literally the state of decay. And then it talks about disobedience. We are disobedient. Following the course of the world, uh, sons of disobedience. Well, the first recorded act of that would be Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, when you look at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, this, imagine you were a, a teacher at a school and you went out for recess. And this is, say, hypothetically, your playground had all kinds of things on it. You had a swing. You had a slide. You had a teeter-totter. You had monkey bars. You had all kinds of things. And you can play with all this. Everything's available to you. Nothing's hindered nothing. But there's this one unit over here in the corner. Maybe it's being worked on and it's not done yet or it's dangerous, so you have to stay away from that. What's the first thing kids want to go to? That thing. Why? Because we're told not to. And who helped Eve and Adam Make that decision. When he comes along, the snake comes along, the serpent. So the question becomes, in my mind, all the time, I say, why did God place the tree that is forbidden in the garden? I'm not going to question that. But I do say, why is that that there? There's a reason, obviously. And how did the serpent get there? Where did he come from? Because he just shows up on the scene. So he comes along... Poor little Eve. Say, 
How you doing here, Eve? You know, what's going on today? Uh, God tell you anything lately? Well, yeah, he said we can have anything we want. The whole thing, everything's bountiful, 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 bountiful. Except we can't eat from that tree right over there. Oh, or else we'll die. Oh, you're not going to die. Disobedience, encouraged, encouraged entirely by Satan, the devil. Three forces that encourage disobedience would be the world, controlled by the values and attitudes of this world, right? And you know, you know that anything in this world, any type of communication in this world, whether it's entertainment, news, education, there's nothing in there that says you should follow Jesus. In fact, just the opposite. Avoid him at all costs. The devil, by using lies, exhibit A, the serpent in the, in the garden, right? And the flesh, the fallen nature that we were born with. And Galatians talks specifically about that. Um, we're going to keep going here just one more second. So God is, uh, so the man is depraved, that's in verse 3b. But then it turns to the piece where God works for us, and that's uh, verses, two, uh, verses 4 through 9, because he loves us. He quickens us. He makes us alive. He exalts us in verse 6. He keeps us. That is a a concept that is difficult for me to understand. Does not let us out of sight. Like a shepherd. A shepherd keeps his sheep. Make sure that they don't stray and and go away, right? And God works in in us in uh, 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 chapter 2, verse 10, and the first part, part A, right? And it talks specifically about works, the kind of works. Well, what kind of works in there is there? Faith and works. John Kelvin said, if it, is, if it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. In other words, faith that works. What kind of works is it? Is works of the law, of the, work of the law, Galatians, works of the flesh, works of the darkness, Dead works that lead to death in Hebrews and the works of righteousness, which is in Titus. We'll quit here and the end. Um, in Ephesians, Paul talks about good works. But I'm just going to finish here with what the author says at the end of our chapter. It would be helpful to close this chapter with a personal inventory. Which of these four works are you experiencing? Is sin working against you because you have not yet trusted Christ then trust him now have you experienced his work for you in you through you are you wearing the grave clothes or the or the grace clothes are you enjoying the liberty you have in Christ are you still bound by the habits of the old life in the graveyard of sin as a Christian you've been raised and seated on the throne practice your position in Christ he has worked for you now let him work in you and through you that he might give you an exciting, creative life to the glory of God. I'll finish in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your works. We thank you for your warnings that you give us that are vivid and clear that we can have a heart for you, not for the things of the world, not for the flesh, not for lies, but for you. That our lives will be lived for you, glorify you, honor you, and worship you, and that we would be your children. We praise things in your name. Amen. See you next week.